This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have an absolutely great show today. And this is part two of our exploration of the Palestinian Nakba. We are so fortunate and uh, really grateful to have Ziad Abbas uh, with us in studio. Um, Ziad is the director of Mecca. Actually, uh, thank you for having me. Shukran, Bilal. I am among Mecca team. Like, we have a You're team. You're being we very... No, we are... <laughs> you are being very humble. Thank you. Ziad, but you have been giving your heart and soul to Mecca for how many years now? I am with Mecca. Actually, I know Mecca since the beginning, since 19... Actually, the beginning, uh, well, 1989. Well, 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 tell us a little bit about Mecca. People, when you talk about Mecca, especially during the month of Ramadan, they think well, maybe we're talking the, about Saudi Arabia. Well, Mecca is the Middle Eastern Children's uh, Alliance uh, NGO, one of the foremost, most important organization doing work for Palestinians, mostly refugees, I would have to say, Ziad, but for Palestinians in Gaza, in West Bank and throughout the world where there are Palestinian refugees, one is, was one of the first organizations committing itself to working with Palestinians. And I would have to say probably the longest serving that we know of right now. It's been over, what, 20, 30 years now. Yeah. It's been for 30 years. The other thing I want to say about Ziad, which I am proud to say about Ziad because I've known him for so long, is that not only is he a Palestinian, but he's a refugee also. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about And that's today. the title of our show, Born a Refugee, and Ziad also is a, a, f- one of the founders of Ibda'ah yeah. at the Dehesha refugee camp, and you, you grew up there. T- yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, thank you for having me, guys, and, uh, and I see myself here around the friends and people they are committed to the cause like all of us the same i think the same uh, shoes in any case i am a Palestinian refugee i was born and grew up in the Hesha refugee camp my family uh, uprooted in 1948 my dad actually uprooted from a village called zakaria it's not that much far from jerusalem it's just like 25 miles from uh, Jerusalem and from where I was born and grew up in the refugee camp in Bethlehem. So it's not that much far. If you do a marathon uh, running, I can go back running. I don't need a a, a car. Uh, Yeah, I was born most of my life in the refugee camp and I graduated from the uh, United Nations schools. And this is why I tell the people about my accent, because they don't teach English in the beginning in the school. They teach us from the fifth grade. And this is oh, how really? much. I didn't know Yeah, that. fifth grade, they used to teach us A, B, C in English. So the time you graduate from the school, it's good if you can have a sentence. You can build the sentence in English. Well, you're doing well. Thank you. But uh, Ziad, before we get more about your story, I think many listeners don't understand the full scope of the Palestinian refugee problem. I mean, there's almost four and a half million, you know, displaced in diaspora Palestinian refugees. M- after more, more than that, just oh, more than half, four and a half, half million. Really, like half the population now, I would say, close to six million. Yeah. So dispersed throughout the world right now. It's quite a large, you know, when we think about the Nakba in terms of the depopulation of the villages. I think about all the people that were uprooted from their homes. It's a large number. Yeah, absolutely. If we go back to 1948, when we speak about 750,000, this is according to United Nations, what they published in that period, 750,000 Palestinians, they were uprooted from 531 villages, towns. And of course, we have the 1967, which you have over 200,000 people, they were uprooted again as a result of the, uh, what we call it, Naxa, actually, yeah, in 1967. But the numbers of the Brazilian refugees, it's higher than that. Actually, the number, it's close to 8 million Brazilian refugees, 7.8, actually, 
million people right now. But what you said, Jamal, right now, uh, the number of the people, they are already registered in the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And the number, like, for their children, we are close, actually, to 5.5 million registered. The rest of the refugees, they are not registered. They're unregistered. Unregistered in right. the United Nations. So the, the people, they sometimes, they don't include them as refugees. But in fact, they, they are. are refugees. Including, when we speak about refugees at the same time, we need to uh, think about that. Not just the Palestinian refugees, they are in 19 refugee camps in West Bank and 8 refugee camps in Gaza. Palestinian refugees, and in Lebanon, of course, and Syria, and in, in, in Jordan. Palestinian refugees, even inside uh, 1948, right. Palestinian, they are actually, there are many Palestinians living inside 1948, inside what they called Israel, that they can see their village, where they are living, and what they call them unrecognized villages, right. not far from their uh, uh, original village. I remember I was working in a film, it's called 500 Dunums in the Moon, about Ain Hod near Haifa and the original people actually they are not living less than they can see on the top of the hill they can see their village every day and they can see the house of course these people they are living without uh, uh, services no water no electricity and it's very hard for them now Palestinian refugees and like speaking around the world yeah it's a huge number of Palestinian refugees since 1948. And this is the, 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 the sad part. Like even my life, I was born in 1964. And when I see, I experienced like seeing other refugees, they return back to their homes from different parts of the world. For example, in Sarajevo and That's Kosovo, right. I saw that in East Timur, that refugees, they return back. Even we saw in Rwanda, after all the, what yes. happened in Rwanda and refugees. Of course, there are still many other refugees. And now we have a new refugees coming. You have refugees from Syria. You have refugees from Libya. You have refugees from Yemen, which it is no one speak that much but about Yemen. But there's every expectation that they will go back if the situation is better. Yeah, uh, according to like, even in Syria right now, but Syrian refugees, over 100,000, according to UN actually, over 100,000 uh, Syrian refugees, they return back from Lebanon to Syria because okay. the people they try to go back, just they cannot feel safe where they live. And in many areas in the world, in our case, it's different. That's right. And this is like I go back what happened in Syria. Palestinian refugees, they are not that much far in from their villages. They allowed them to go to Europe, but they couldn't cross the borders to come back to Palestine. And this is like, we are around Palestine, but we are not allowed to go to Palestine. The other thing I can talk about it actually, sometimes the, what is the meaning to be a refugee? Mm. And this is what the people do. Well, actually, we have a question on this, right? Uh, on, uh, and we welcome our viewers and listeners, uh, both on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM and on Facebook Live. One question says, because I know what you're going to be talking about, and the question is from Rami Mayo from Sydney, Australia. And he says, who is a refugee? Do we find our own definition of the refugees or do we automatically adopt the one used by the UNRWA? Actually, what the people they use actually right now, what's the UNRWA, which the people they were forced by power to leave their homes, like sometime war, sometime uh, disease, flood, uh, natural causes. But mostly in the United Nations, they deal with refugees as the political uh, uh, content behind that. And these, the the refugees, they are forced to leave their homes from uh, from their original villages. And they have the desire to return back. That's right. Yeah, and there are some refugees, they can't go back because still it's not safe for them to go back. Like the case of Syria or the case of Yemen or the case of Libya. And the other cases like in in Rohingya uh, in uh, in Asia and that part of the world where the refugees, they escape from genocide. And this is in our case in Palestine, like what happened in 1948 for us because according to the ethnic cleansing policy and the way how the Zionist movement, they planned, they had the plan, and they still are like the plan D, Dalit, uh, that uh, Ilan Babé, he spoke about in his introduction, actually, uh, in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine book, with that meeting in the Red House, in, in what's called Herzliya, near uh, Tel Aviv, and how the 11 leaders from the Zionist movement, they sit down together and they had a plan how to attack every village. 
And usually for me, through my own experience, like as a refugee, and I grew up in a refugee camp, and I succeed to visit my village after a long time, in yeah. 1998, the first time. And what's, uh, what's your village like Zakaria. now? Zakaria is right now, in 1948, Zakaria, actually, in October 14th, that my family, they left. And my mom, actually, she had two children. My sister, she was two years old. My brother, he was two weeks old. Mm. So my brother will be 70 years old in, in October. Right. And uh, he spent 50 years in the diaspora out of the 70 years of his life. And Zakaria destroyed almost uh, most of the village, except the mosque still exists until now. Mm -hmm. And the school still exists until now. And one of the houses. The house is really, really beautiful house. I don't know, Jamal, you know how mm -hmm. in uh, Jerusalem right. and around they build this kind of houses stone from stone yeah. and artistic like... Uh, an artist who built that house still, and actually there were uh, Jewish uh, immigrant living there in, in, the, in that house. Jirash, my mom family, which is totally destroyed. If you go visit my uh, mom village called the Jirash, you will not find out that uh, uh, they were is, people. Where is Jirash? It's not far from Jerusalem, the same, also. 25 miles from Jerusalem. And Jirash swept totally. Even when I visited Jirash the first time, I visited with my uncle. And I did this the first time. And when I got there, my uncle, he left the village when he was 18 years old. So he remember everything. And my uncle, he never went to a school or a university, nothing. He doesn't read and write. And when I went with him, when we got there, I thought my uncle, it was 1998. I thought my uncle got old, he forgot things. But in reality, it's when I start walking, like they destroyed everything. But my uncle, he made everything talking. Wow. The stones, the trees, and slowly, slowly he started drawing the village in front of me. From his and memory. Yeah, because his memory, and this is what the Israelis, even until now, they couldn't kill or they couldn't uproot. That I know the image of the village because the way how my uncle draw it, even where my mom, she used to, where she was born, where she used to walk, when she wake up, when she opened the window, what can she... He described everything, and we were digging there, and we find the first steps of the stairs to our house. Wow. Because wow. every... All from there. his memory, he reconstructed the entire village, basically. And this is with the Nakba generation. It's sad that most of the Nakba generation leaving, and but they left us with, with not members. just the legacy, the keys of the houses. They left right. us with these kind of images they built. It. They shaped us around these images. We're speaking with uh, Ziad Abbas. Ziad is... Uh, um, joining us today, we're very fortunate to have him in studio. We're discussing the, this is our part two in our series on the Nekba, and we're hearing about uh, Palestinian refugees. Ziad is also part of the leadership team. He's the director, in my opinion, but he's very La modest, of the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance, Mecca, one of the foremost NGOs working with Palestinians, probably the first, really, at a time when it wasn't you know, stylish to work with Palestinians. Well, yes. I'm, I'm going to take uh, this <laughs> moment also to remind our listeners uh, who are in the Bay Area that on Monday, June 4th, from 5 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., uh, it will be the 30th anniversary of Mecca or the Middle East Children's Alliance. And they're going to be having a tribute to its co-founder, Barbara Lubin, who many of you uh, know, know her personally, but also uh, we're going to be honoring many people and we're going to have speakers. You, it's, the event will be emceed by Ali Abunime from Electronic Intifada. Alice Walker will be there, Angela Davis, Barbara Lubin, of course, Melanie, Melanie Denmore. And, uh, you know, you can find out more about the events and just go to meccaforpeace.org. That's Mecca their website. Peace. Or you can call 510-548-0542. It's going to be a great celebration, Ziad. Yeah, actually, this is 30 years. It's good and sad. Even 
some, uh, when I talked with Barbara, she said, I never thought Mecca will survive for this because the issue of refugees, the issue of Palestine will be solved. Now this is the sad part that we're still doing this work. The good thing is Mecca is a great organization. I'm very proud to be part of this team. Our team actually not just here in Berkeley, our team in, in West Bank and our team in Gaza Strip, Dr. Amuna and Amal and Wafa, they are working on the ground too. In the, uh, our engineers and the doctor, you know, Dr. Amuna. And we have my colleague Josie, she's living in West Bank. And we have here our team in, in, in Berkeley. All of us, we are working together. And I can say, Mecca, yeah, we focus recently on refugees, not just in, in, in Palestine. We work with Syrian refugees yes. too, and we work with the projects in Lebanon for Syrian refugees. When I say Syrian refugees, even any refugees left Syria, there are among them Iraqis, Palestinian, and the majority they are Syrians, but right. they are living around Syria and in Lebanon, where we support different kind uh, of projects. Al Yarmouk camp, which is the, the largest in Syria, used to be, used to house uh, more than 160,000 Palestinian refugees. So now they're made refugees again after 70 years or after almost 70 years in their case when they basically started to leave a couple of years Actually, ago. Actually, just a few thousands left in the camp, and most of them, the people, they are, they couldn't leave old and stuck, actually, in yeah. Yarmouk. And some of these refugees, most of them, and some of them actually living in, in, in Lebanon, and some of them, they went to Turkey and to, to Europe. But it's very hard. Like, my sister, she was, and my nephews and nieces, mm -hmm. and as a refugee, for us, my family, we were, like, my brother in Jordan, my sister in Syria with her family, my brother in Jordan, and we were in the rest in the West Bank. And after 2011-2012, my sister family, my sister passed away, and my nephews and nieces, they couldn't live there, and they moved to Jordan right now. And this is, for us as refugees, this is what I want to say. The meaning of refugee doesn't end where you will be settled, That's which right. we will never, ever be settled as a refugee. That's right. Even well, if you type try to pretend, pretend, mm -hmm. because you will be, uh, maybe you will get American citizenship or Australian or any, and you can move all over, but still, and you can live where you want except your village. This is the, uh, the, the sad Well, part. here is the interesting aspect, at least, and you know more about the Haitian, we've had a conversation before, but I remember also seeing and meeting some of the uh, the troop, uh, the Ibda troop, when they came here, how many years ago? This has been like they came three times: 99, 2003, 2005. And last year we had a new troop from Dehesha called Shuruk. They came here and they did the tour. Well, I'm talking about actually my memory. Maybe that's from the very first time they came 99. here. 99. And I talking, remember that too. Yeah. And talking to the young uh, men and uh, young ladies who came, but. When and we know and you know that Dehesha uh, is in Bethlehem, right? So when you ask people where are you from, and these are the children and the grandchildren of refugees, they never say, "Well, I'm from Bethlehem." They'll say, "I am from Saris, or "I'm from this village or that village." Yeah, absolutely. So, this is you know, yeah. I mean, this is amazing that these are people, these are young kids who maybe ne have never been there, but they identify themselves by the village and the towns that their parents and grandparents got ev evicted from. Yeah, actually, this is something like which the Israelis they couldn't control and they couldn't erase. Erase for us as Palestinian. And here I want to go back to the ethnic cleansing. Because Israel, they, they built their uh, strategy in that period to uproot the people, destroy the houses, plant trees. Uproot, destroyed, plant. Uproot the people, throw them out through massacres, attacking the village. After that, destroyed the houses. Third, planted trees erase the history. So, and this is what they say. There are many Zionist leaders, including Bergerion. They thought that the, the Nakba generation will die, will leave. The new generation will forget. But in fact, as you said, Jamal, yeah, this is for me when I was young at my home. I didn't know my dad. He passed away while I am a baby. But I grew up around my mom. So the village, even I imagined the right of return, the practicality, because all the time, this Nakba generation, all the time they speak about when we go back, when we'll go back. They speak about their 
happy days in the village, but later they say soon we'll go back. And I start to imagine through the description they speak how the village, and even when I was a child, like I was thinking, ah, oh, the, the, the trucks, they will line up in front of the camp. The refugees, they will take, we didn't have that much furniture, just the mattresses and blankets in our room in that period. We'll put it in the truck, and even I want to decide, uh, like I was planning, I will sit down in the back of the truck so I can see Palestine. I can see when we go back. And this is like it's in your dream you hear that. This is how we learned about the village. It's not just someone you memorize it. It's a grew up shape you. That's right. It's come with your blood, with your body, with your brain. Because, look, I hate the refugee camp, Jamal. I hate it, hate it a lot. But I love the spirit in the refugee camp which the Israelis, after 70 years, they couldn't kill. This is the spirit make these children, everyone introduce himself, uh, a girl or a boy, or even sometimes we give the names of the villages to our new children. I have many, like for example, Bisan. It's a popular name in Palestine. Bisan uh, or Majdal. It's a, my niece called Majdal. <laughs> Named after the, Majdal. the village. Yeah, the, 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 the village the, the, yeah. yeah, this is how, this is what the Israelis couldn't but, erase. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, let's, let's talk about a difficult subject, which is life in the camp and resistance in the camp and the history of living under a brutal apartheid uh, occupied aggressor because it was pretty brutal to grow up in the camp. Yeah, for, for us even, I, I, when I go back even to look to my, I'm, I, I'm privileged, I say all the time. I came to United States like almost 10 years ago, but I still feel I am really very privileged because I can shower every day, Jamal. <laughs> And I can drive where I want. And this kind of privilege, two privileges, I feel this is part of the access to your, a little bit of your freedom, to have a shower every day. That's right. Life in camp, it's tough, very hard. This is why how you feel it when you see the Syrian or Yemeni refugees or Libyan or any other refugees in Africa or any other country, what it means. Imagine yourself, you wake up that morning, you don't have water to wash your face. And your mom, she needs to go carry the water in her head two, three miles to bring it for you or to wash the dishes. The other thing is, and I, I say, like my mom, she used to do that. And my mom, she used to have strong shoulders when she passed away. And I say it all the time, even my presentation when I do it for students, that my mom, she participated in the international championship for bodybuilding. She will win. And by the way. This is the catastrophe generation, how we survive. Because these moms, they succeed to help us to survive. They used to carry everything in their shoulders. Look to the, any women in Africa and India. Look to their shoulders who carry the water in their head. This is part. The other part in the refugee camp, to be a refugee, uh, when I was young, I thought the borders of the camp, it's the end of the earth. We were children. You cannot go out. And, and Back you, then there was the fence, too. Yeah, we, I spent 10 years of my life because they built the fence in 1985 until 1995. But before that, the curfew. Right. We spent a long time under curfew. Where you stuck in a room, one room, even you can't access the public bathrooms. Because in that period, we didn't have our own private. I remember in 1976, we had a big celebration in my family when we succeed to have the first private bathroom where you can go every morning when we want to use it. Because after, before that, we used to line up. You, as a refugee, we are related to the waiting cultures. The moment you wake up at morning, you want to go to use the bathroom, you, you need to wait to line to, right. uh, in lines. And here, I don't want to go with the statistics because 25, uh, and each 25 families, they had two bathrooms. One for women, one for men. And each family minimum in that period, there were seven people in the house. Seven by five, one 150 people, they depends in two bathrooms. Every day, anytime you want to do it. There's and when they use impose care for you, used to impose care for you, where people not allowed to leave their rooms, because we didn't have apartments, rooms. Our room, it was 81 square feet, 9 feet by 9 feet. You cannot go access the bathroom. You need to do it inside the corner of the house, become a bathroom for everyone in the family. This is when you speak about what it means sometimes to be a refugee. It's not the idea just you live in that space, tents or room, but the daily life mm. of the, the same. After that, you want to go to clinic, one doctor, for example, for 12,000 people, the work for, for six hours. 
minimum, and I did my research in the camp, and you remember you visit us when we right. work in health, 400 people visit the clinic per day. Per if you day? divide six hours and 400, you'll find many seconds for each patient. And only one patient. doctor. One yeah. doctor in the camp right. in that period. So, And the schools, which is very boring schools, not just the building itself, even the curriculums. This is how I learned that in that school that Columbus discovered America. When people start go to prison, they learn that Columbus did not discover America <laughs> because you learn the right education actually in the prison, not in the United Nations school. And life in the camp, it's, it's tough. It's very hard. This, I, 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 I know most of the people living in refugee camps, they hate the refugee camps. But well, of also, course, also we love the spirit, as right. I said, because the community, they come together. With the, right. This is how we support But you wouldn't other. let alone, I mean, the difference is, uh, I mean, of course, it's terrible for everyone who had experienced being a refugee, be it in Syria, Yemen, and so forth. But when you live in, like the example of Dehesha, your story doesn't end right there being a refugee because now you're also under occupation and under siege. And we can draw this the, the same example to entire of Gaza because right. Gaza is... is not only it's a one big open prison, prison right. but it's also made out of thousands and thousands of refugees, right? In, in Gaza, they, they used to give letters to the rows of refugees, you know, like your A, B, C, right. you know, J, you came from yeah. Jaffa and, and so forth. So you're not left alone. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in, in Dehesha uh, and all the attacks by the Israelis, all the arrests, and how many people, you know, the beatings. The, yeah. And let's not forget, Ziad, you spent quite a time in Israeli military prison. Yeah, actually, uh, 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 this is something like, it's, I'm very, like, not, not satisfied 100%, but because when we got goes to Nakba, we didn't document the Nakba very well as Palestinian. This is one of the things like we criticize ourselves. And right now I see more people writing, documenting the life you speak about, Jamal, where what how's the life in the refugee camp and the recubation. And for me, like the Heshets was a pioneering camp for struggle against the Israeli occupation. So even in 1979, I remember when the Israelis, the first thing, because the, the schools and the people, they are living on the main road between Jerusalem and Hebron. And every day, the settlers, they need to pass the settlements, they need to pass in front of the camp. So the children, youth, they used to throw stones. And sometimes the camp attacked by settlers, where they just, they open the fire and they start shooting toward the camp. And in that period, they sealed 14 entrances from the main road to the camp, where people, they cannot access. They need to uh, climb rocks and to get out to the main street. Or if I want to go to school every day, I need to climb these rocks to get to school. Later on, they built the fence. They isolate the camp by high fence. Now the people, they see the wall, but in reality, there are fence. They were in Dehesha, they were in Arub, they were in Balata refugee camp, eight meters high fence. And we used to have one gate revolving actually two two entrances do you remember yeah, yeah one of the revolving it's like a, a memorial right now but in that period revolving only one by one can leave the camp and one by one can enter the camp and most of the time it was controlled by the israelis in addition to that it's the curfew mm -hmm. we did this study about my camp the study covered like 1979 between 1979 to 1995 for 16 years we find out that the Hesha refugee camp spent under curfew four months per a year when you wow. count that. This is actually statistics related to United Nations. Imagine you spend four months every year for 16 years under curfew. In addition to that, you have the Israeli army 24 hours. We had um, uh, two military camps, in front, one in front of the camp and one on the top of the hill. It's uh, where is the... Uh, right, where uh, I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the, you have the military camps and the soldiers 24 hours, they are moving in the streets of the camp. They can attack any house. They can arrest anyone. They can search your house any moment and they can get there. This is like living under military, direct military occupation. In addition to that, 
I wrote actually this piece recently, and they speak about it like the school we used to go to. Sometimes the Israelis, they come, when someone throws stones, they announce a loudspeaker. Every male, every man, actually boy and man, between the age 14 to age 60, they need to go to school. And imagine in winter, mm -hmm. you go to school. I remember when I was young, I used to be jealous because I was before 19, uh, before 14 years old. I want to go like the others. I don't want to stay home. And my mom, no, no, no. When I become 14, I succeed to go. When they call, announce on the loudspeaker. So I went. And I wish I didn't go. Because it was the way how they tortured men in the refugee camp. That you are in the, in, the, in the playground. You sit down. It's, sometimes it's raining. I saw my teachers, they were tortured and beaten by the, st imagine students, they see the teachers tortured by the soldiers. The classrooms transferred instead to be classroom interrogation rooms. We used like, we love the school and we hate the school because this is where they torture you. Mm -hmm. And this is like part of the Israeli, the way, it's not just our camp, I use my camp, it's like all the refugee camps, the, the rest of the refugee camps in Uspang and Gaza, almost the same. And still the Israelis, they are doing that. Still they attack yes. my camp and the other camps every day right now. We're, <coughs> we're speaking with Ziad Abbas. This is KPOO in San Francisco. We're at 89.5 FM. Ziad is an uh, extraordinary Palestinian uh, man, refugee, fighter, resistance, struggler. Um, he's also, in my humble opinion, kind of the heartbeat right now of uh, Mecca, the Middle Eastern Children's Alliance, which is celebrating their 30th anniversary. We encourage our listeners to celebrate with Mecca on Monday, June 4th from 5 to 9.30 p.m., at Freight and Salvage uh, Coffee House in Berkeley. Check out the uh, website. It's meccaforpeace.org. There's, I mean, Alice Waters is going to be there. It's kind of, uh, kind of a big deal. Yeah, we are very excited about this event, actually, 30th anniversary. And I want to remind the people that all the funds coming to this, this is going to Palestine. This is not just celebration, it's at the same time fundraising for Palestinians everywhere, actually, wherever our projects. And we have, we work in, in Lebanon, we work in Gaza, we work in West Bank, we work in East Jerusalem, and we are very proud, actually, as Mecca for 30 years. And here I need to, like, uh, to highlight the, 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 the resilience of the Palestinian people in the ground. They are influence us. They lead us actually in Mecca. I don't want to say as Mecca, but they lead us. They help us to do the right work. Because they, these people like in, in, in refugee camps in Lebanon, Syrian or Palestinian or Iraqis or Yemenis, or in Palestine and Gaza or West Bank, these people like, they try to survive. And me, honestly, I used to work in Dehesha. This is when we met guys in the camp. And I used actually, I was working in Ibda in that period, and this is how part of Mecca actually, when I met Mecca, in that period I was working in the ground there and Mecca used to fund us and support. And I remember, and I want to say, the first project when you spoke about the children, they know the villages. Mm -hmm. I, we, after I visited my village the first time, and the, the way how they changed my life, after I saw my mom village and my dad village. And I decided I don't need to wait long time. These children, they should visit their villages very early. I remember this project. And we, yeah, we, where, oh, we, sta <laughs> we, well, start, we start taking the children to visit. And I applied, we wrote proposals. We didn't get funds. But the moment I got to my Mecca in that period, they supported us. And now I'm working in Mecca here. The, how it's changed. We, I used to receive the support there, and now I am in the position where we work with other well, people in the ground. Let's go back a little bit to Ibda' because I think this is an incredible project. Uh, basically, you know, taking all that negativity and energy, you know, for the children, but putting them, you know, to, you know, I mean, this is was you could call it performing arts project. It's also project about having them feel pride in their own. History. Yes. History. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Ibda is part of me too. 14 years of my life I was there working in Ibda. And now we have Ibda, Sharuk, uh, Sharuk in the Hesh refugee camp. And you have many other organizations. But I want to go back to the history. The refugees is not just people, they line up to receive food from United Nations. Refugees, they are fighters. 
and they have their own initiatives. They have the artists, they have the doctors, the That's engineers. Right. And the dads came as a as an refugees initiative. Mm -hmm. This is how we started, like in that period. And it was the first organization ever in any refugee camp: Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Spank, where girls and boys they can work together, because our community it wasn't. And we succeed, like we focused on, of course, in that period of 1994, we were focused. We fear we are lifted out for Oslo. You remember Oslo, mm -hmm. 93 and refugees. Well, I try not to remember, but But yes. it's a fact. We cannot ignore it. And we need to raise our voice. We need to find ways to raise our voice as Palestinian refugees. And through the programs, the art program, the DEPCA program, the, the theater program, and through different kind of projects, we succeed to build this model where right now you have everywhere, actually, in all Palestinian refugee camps, You have organized many, right. many tens of organizations. That's right. And even sometimes you have ten organizations in the same refugee camp. The same right now in Lebanon, like in these refugee camps, the Syrian, there are many organizations in these refugee camps. I can say I'm very proud of that to be part of this experience, but I am very proud of the community. They support this kind of a project to come out and to create the space for the children to taste the childhood at the same time to learn about who they are and to plan their future too. Ziad, could you tell us what your feeling and analysis was when you saw the Al-Auda march in Gaza? What, what that left you with when you saw that? Yeah, I wrote this piece actually recently and I sent it in Mecca email. I don't know if you saw it guys but it seems you didn't read it but <laughs> I will say when I was a child as I said I dreamed like I heard my mom and her generation speak when we go back when we go back so practically I had my own imagination how it will go back and you grow up about it, soon we'll go back in 2011 and I want to remind you and the listeners They were other rehearsal, I call it, for Al-Auda. When right. the people, like, they tried from Lebanon, they walked that's down right. to the north to of the, Palestine. The, right. From Go Syria, they went to Golan Heights. Right. Actually, I have still the photos. The how some of them even succeed. And one of them, at least one case, they made succeed. Made it all the way to Akka, I think. Yeah, made it to his village, to yeah. Akka. And after he visited the village, took photos, sent it. He went to the Israelis. And after that, they sent him back to Syria. I, for me, what happened in 2011, it was huge, but I call it it's the rehearsal or the people they are practicing the right. For me, when I see the people in Gaza, of course, in, in Gaza, when you have over almost two million people, they are living on 139 square miles. And I don't know the size of San Francisco, but I say eight like... By eight miles. Yeah, but 139 square miles, uh, two million people. Among them, like over, uh, actually 50%, they are children below 18. Actually, 43% of the people in Gaza, That's they are right. children below 15 years old. And in Gaza, in, uh, in general, you have 1.3 million of the people in Gaza, they are refugees. That's right. They are, their villages, actually, some of their villages, not that far from Gaza Strip, actually. And uh, Majdal and all these areas, it's not that far from uh, Gaza. You see the people, they come back. Hey, all of this siege for almost 11 years. Living in refuge in refugee camps for 70 years. Attacks, wars, people dying, children dying. Of course the people, what else? When I speak with my colleagues or when we see the reports, and the people, they fade up in simple way. The people, they fade up from this life in Gaza. And when you, of course, what they will think, the Palestina right now, what we call it, We never changed. Still in our back, like we say, it's the issue for us is to return back to our villages. This is how we can feel settled. This is how we can feel secure. This is how we can make a good future for our new generations. It's not for us just, it's for the new generation. People in Gaza, they are trying, I say, the people, the simple people, like women, men, youth, they try to take their own initiatives and they try to access their rights. They want to go back. They want to end the suffering by accessing their right to go back to live in their villages. And by the way, most of the Palestinian villages in inside Israel, it's empty. It's just not like my mother village. It's like a national park, mm -hmm. nature reserve, actually, uh, reservation, they say it, nature, just for well, the Israelis. The statistics are that yeah. uh, more than 90% 
of the depopulated villages, Palestinian villages, are still empty. Yeah, and people, they can go back. But because we are Palestinian and we look like this, our blood, we are Arabs, we are not Jewish, we are not allowed to this, uh, access this right. But anyone is Jewish anywhere in the world, from South Africa or from Sweden or from Australia, or anytime. Or from Brooklyn. Or from Brooklyn or from Berkeley and San Francisco. Anytime you want to go back to live there, yeah, you can claim that you are Jewish and go live there. Because you are Jewish, you can live there. People there, the indigenous people, they are not allowed to live there. Well, tell us uh, how, I mean, at least you, from your experience in Adhesha, uh, how did the people react to Oslo? Because some would argue that the Oslo Accords basically robbed the refugees from their right of return. The minute that the Palestinian Authority, later on, uh, initially the PLO, uh, basically decided or accepted the, that Palestine will be on the land occupied after 1967, they immediately... Gave, gave away the right of return for millions of Palestinians. Yeah, this is, the, the, this is like I can say, even when it was happened, like for us by the Palestinian or the leadership of BLO in that period, they accepted the fact to postpone the negotiation around Jerusalem and around uh, refugees and around water and borders to the final negotiation and accept Gaza-Jericho. You remember mm -hmm. that period? Gaza and Jericho and to start Oslo Agreement. This is the feeling for us we are lifted out. But it wasn't that much clear in that period, but for me I learned more. And I remember I visited South Africa in, mm. in June two th uh, 1994, two months after Mandela won the, the election, and uh, I went to the townships there. And when I asked, oh, one person, one vote, what about these people in the townships? Nothing. And until now in South Africa, over 8 million landless. Maybe I'm wrong about the statistics. I think the number higher. But minimum, mm -hmm. 8 million people in South Africa landless since 1994 until now. And for us, Oslo, yes, lift the Palestinian out, lift the Palestinian refugees out, lift the Palestinian 1948 out. Mm -hmm. They didn't right. lift the Palestinian is in diaspora out and lift the Palestinian in East Jerusalem. They accept the few hundred thousand they succeed to return back through Oslo. But in fact, it didn't make any sense for Palestinian refugees. And Oslo, it was a huge, I call it, we, uh, we had the Nakba, the catastrophe, but we have many other Nakabat, other con catastrophes. It's, con it's never ending, actually. It's, That's what we were yeah, talking it's about. Yeah, it's continue this. and still continue. Uh, the ethnic cleansing policy continue. And we have the catastrophes that's happening. Oslo, one of our catastrophes. But in a way, I mean, <laughs> I see what's, what's happening in Gaza. And of course, you know, people are demonstrating... Uh, uh, peacefully, uh, that there is a an awakening because people are, have given up on Oslo, and they've they're now, you know, maybe waking up, seeing the result from Oslo. Not now, they are demonstrating that they want to go back to their villages. Yeah, as Oslo, it's one of the reasons because Oslo divided the Palestinian community, especially in Palestine, to two classes. More. Actually, I can say, Yanni, in general, two classes. Oslo class who got the benefit from Oslo. Financial benefit. Financial benefit. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the Palestinian community, they got nothing. Actually, right. Israel confiscated land since Oslo until now, more since peace period, more than they confiscated land since 1967. And this is West Bank. And yeah, true. West Bank. So more than they confiscated during the war period. Mm -hmm. Oslo, it's become like actually a cover for that Israel continue. Even today, they are Netanyahu he announced they are expanding settlements, 2,500 uh, 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 units will be built, expand settlements. Today they announced because he reacting that the Palestinian Authority, they are reaching out to the international organizations. This is the fact actually for us uh, Palestinians that Oslo destroyed us, divided us. The fragmentation became very deep in our community. That's right. Even they want us to do election. Even when you have election, they don't accept the result. When the result doesn't match their interests, if some other people won in the election, they don't want them in the, they don't want to deal with them. They banish the whole Palestinian people, not just, this is the, 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 the issue, yes. 
I, I don't want to say the people they wake up, the people they are aware of Oslo because we never stopped. Because if they were like, you remember Abu Ghanim mm -hmm. uh, when they built this Har Homa settlements oh, in Jerusalem to close the circle? Mm -hmm. They were the people in the streets in that period. Yeah. And I remember the Second Intifada started too. And, and the people, they still continue. And every Friday, you can see many towns, many villages where they have their own protests, even before Gaza. Gaza for them, like they start reaching out to the, to the we saw the people in Gaza actually 2011 when they crossed the borders to uh, Reach, That's right. Destroyed the border, and they said, "Ah, all the people in Gaza they flee. They are leaving Gaza, going to other countries. They destroyed the the border at morning. At evening, everyone returned everyone back to their home. Back. They went. They bought food, milk, whatever they need, that and they returned it. back. Yeah, whatever. They came, back. they came back, and for them, because they are not looking to leave toward that direction, Egypt, and they are looking to the other side, <laughs> the other direction where they want to return back to their own villages. I call it. Right now, the people just, they are aware of that. They fed up from Oslo. They fed up from all the consequences and the results coming th uh, around Oslo. And just, it's very simple. Palestinian rights, it's very clear. It's not complicated. These refugees, they are, they want to live in dignity and in freedom. So, Ziad, <coughs> uh, I know that some of our listeners are, are wanting to hear from you because we hear this all the time. I know you hear it. What can we do about this? And so I want to talk a little bit about some of the projects that you're doing with Mecca. Mm -hmm. And specifically, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, I want to be an ally of this struggle, you know, what can I do? How do you answer? Yeah, actually, I, I can see recently, even I was watching actually the video. There were a video going around about Nikki Haley, what she did in Boston. And all these kind of, uh, 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 like, the people, that, the wake up, how the people, they are, um, respond toward Palestine. Oh, Nikki Haley, recently in Houston. Houston, yeah. Houston, yeah. In Houston, where the student, they stand up and accused her. Absolutely, first of all, people, they need to be, uh, to learn. Uh, now we cannot, the people, they find, oh, we don't know, we, the mass media, they don't cover, but no, they you have other alternatives. You are online. You can get the information anytime, you any listen moment. to Arab talk. Also. You can listen to this program. <laughs> 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 you can listen and you can find, no excuse anymore. There is no excuse. Yeah, people, they need to be aware of that. And oppression, it's everywhere. The moment you are an ally for people abreast, immediately you are an ally for Palestinian. Just you need to keep this cause. Right now, Palestine is facing a huge uh, issue, a huge, actually, attack, I call it, because what's going on in the Arab world, especially in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, in uh, Libya, in Iraq, and still, who knows where it will stop. So the Palestinian cause is not on the top of the list. The only thing, it's like last few weeks where people from Gaza, from the, the blood of the uh, uh, um, <coughs> peaceful demonstrators make the cause a little bit in the media. People, they need to line up to be in solidarity. They can support and they can uh, educate each other. They can uh, protest. They can write for the Congress members. They can, there are many other, there are many other uh, uh, people they can uh, support. At the same time, we in Mecca. Yeah, but if someone wanted to support a project, let's say with Mecca, like one of my favorite projects that you've done, to be honest with you, is the water project. And um, I know over the years, the idea of clean drinking water is something that's really extraordinary and very, you know, and, um, you know, is not easy. But I will tell you that uh, the kinds of projects that Mecca has and contributes to is very, very important. Along those lines, you know, <clears throat> Don't you think that boycott, divestment, and sanctioning is another thing that people can do? Is that something where people can get on board with the BDS movement? Okay, just I will speak about the water. You speak about BDS. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the water project actually 
It's one of the main projects right now. We are it's coming. It's one of my favorite projects. Yeah, it's it's a, it's amazing project because the water in Gaza Strip, 90, according to UN reports, according to uh, Amnesty International, even according to the Israeli human rights, like Beit Salem, they were uh, they, they 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 published their reports that 95 percent of the water in Gaza is polluted, and actually many children they die from Gaza because the pollution related to diarrhea and the diarrhea related right. to the pollution in the water. And we started this project almost 10 years ago, and right now we are coming to the 75th school and kindergartens where we build water purification and desalinization systems. And this idea actually, to be honest, it came from the children themselves. When Dr. Amuna, she reached out to the children, what you need from us, because we are Middle East Children's Alliance, what can we do for you? And the children, that period they were called children parliament, where children they meet, they organize themselves, and they came out and they told Dr. Amuna, Muna, she expected that they will come, they ask about video games, computers, something like this no. but they came and surprised everyone actually they said can we have a clean glass of water when we go to school because they are afraid to drink the water in the school and we start building these water purification and desalinization systems in Gaza and still there are many well, schools in the list to we me want to uh, yeah <laughs> this is probably one of the most important projects that anyone could support in Gaza right now. Because without clean drinking water, really, you cannot survive. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you mentioned Dr. Muna, Muna Al-Farra, Al-Farra, from Gaza. Yeah, she's from she Gaza. She here, uh, yeah. I remember also. Well, yeah. Dr. <clears throat> Muna is legendary in Gaza. She is a physician, doctor, uh, leader, activist in Gaza who has done extraordinary work under very difficult times. We will talk about that. We, we have talked about the BDS movement nonstop uh, on this shows yet, yeah. but it's never too late and it's never, never enough yeah. to, to talk about how all people who are interested in justice in Palestine, when they ask the question, what can we do, Jamal, we always talk about Boycott, divestment, sanctions, the BDS movement, which actually is gaining quite a bit of strength right now. Actually, uh, what I hear from reports, I read the Israeli media all the time. They're freaking out. They are freaking out from well, the... Well, this, I, yeah. I'll give you actually an updated news. I don't know if you guys saw, saw this, but uh, today, and you could look this up, uh, Mr. Your favorite friend, uh, Sheldon Adelson, <laughs> he's again implicated in financing of a spying campaign yeah, with the by, Mossad. Uh, by Israeli ex-Mossad agents, I don't right. know if they're ex or whatever, and one of the people they've been spying on is uh, uh, Linda uh, Linda, Sarsour. Linda Sarsour from New York. This is, uh, this is a fresh article, but actually they are spying on all activists, especially activists uh. involved on college campuses and wherever who support the BDS. Yeah. So if it was not effective, what I'm saying, Sheldon Edelson if, 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 the, if, if, if it is not effective, there wouldn't be this panic and the millions of dollars and millions of shekels that both Israel is uh, contributing to this with the help of Sheldon Adelson, with the help of uh, Hayim Saban and others. Ziad, we... Uh we want to thank you for your courage. We want to thank you for your dedication. And we want to thank you for your work. We And I want to encourage want to our listeners. June to, 4th, to Mecca go, for Peace. Yeah, go on the website, meccaforpeace.org. It's the 30th anniversary of the Middle East Children's Alliance. And there is a tribute for its co-founder, Barbara Lubin. And I forgot to mention there'll be uh, award presentations. And uh, they'll be given to... Uh, one of our favorite guests here, Dr. Rabab Abdel Hadi, Reem Asil, and Lara Kiswani, all of whom been they've been guests of course of this show. So uh, check it out. And uh, yeah, thank it's you coming so much on June fourth, five to seven p.m. And thank you for your hard work, man. We really appreciate everything that you do. Thank you for having me. Okay, on that note, uh, send us your comments to Arab Talk at kpoo.com. Go to our web, website, ArabTalkRadio.com. Check us out on Facebook, Jamal Dijani 2. We'll see you next week.